Whenever you think of major cities in North America, they all have a vibe. New York City is legendary for Wall Street, San Francisco for tech, and LA for Hollywood. But over the last 25 years, one firm has blended the best of all three worlds, Upfront Ventures. Upfront is LA's largest venture capital firm and has invested over $2 billion in startups across notable winners like Bird, Ring, ThreadUp, TrueCar, and Goat. This week, I chatted with Kara Norman, co-managing partner of Upfront. Kara's cool. She had a lot of unique insights on the state of venture and sports, a topic we nerded out on given Kara's one of the co-owners of Angel City, LA's professional women's soccer team, alongside her friends Natalie Portman, Julie Ehrman, and Alexis O'Hanahan. Tune into this one if you're into the crossover between sports, leadership lessons, and tech. I learned a lot from Kara in the conversation and continue to as we collaborate across other initiatives. Welcome, Kara. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, Kara, excited to have you on the show today. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics, but before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to Upfront. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a, I'm a San Fernando Valley girl, the original Valley girl, so I'm an LA native. All I wanted to do was go east uh, for college, which I thought meant um, really anything east of um, of um, uh Michigan. So they didn't teach me geography very well here in, in sunny Southern California. But anyway, I, I, I'd say just high level of my background. Um, I always had sort of strong, I'd say nonprofit. Now I'd call them activist interests and strong capitalism interests, um, which, uh, which means sometimes I'm a capitalist in a room full of activists and sometimes I'm an activist in a room full of capitalists. But Ultimately, straight out of college, I was trying to decide between going to work for a nonprofit and going to Morgan Stanley. And um, those truly were my last two decisions. The reason I bring it up is it it kind of guided, I think it's kind of like been a dual path of what I've thought about over the years. But ultimately, um, I went to Morgan Stanley and their private equity group straight out of school. And that was sort of the start of a career that it's pretty evenly split between investing and operating. So I, you know, I've been operating for, I operated for about a decade in companies that were big and small. I worked at IAC uh, for about six or seven years, um, both in corporate kind of co-heading the M&A group, and then also running a couple of their business units, Urban Spoon, City Search. I incubated what turned into Tinder when I was pregnant with my third child. Um, and then I also started a startup that Upfront, that Upfront actually backed. So my partner, Mark Suster, was on my board. Um, but the years before that, I was at, you know, a bunch of a couple different venture firms and private equity firms, and it was all enterprise infrastructure, storage, security investing. So a lot of, uh, I guess what led me to upfront looks linear when I talk about it now, but I'm starting to talk about it in a less linear way. Um, because I think people, uh, look for role models in the world of how they get into venture. And honestly, I just want to encourage more people who are the right fit, who aren't out of central casting to think about it. And there's no one right path. Um, but what ultimately led me to, um, to Upfront was my relationship with my partner, Mark Suster and the firm and its position in Southern California. But Mark was my board member. And um, I just say, and I'm happy to go into more detail. I just, I had such an unusual and positive experience with him on my board um, that when I sold the company, he said, hey, I think it's time for you to come back into venture. And I had thought I had left that behind um, uh, when I moved into operating roles. And um, it was a very special moment in the Southern California tech ecosystem. Um, Mark was a unique partner to me in many ways, but probably the most significant was he was just um, very kind to me 
when I was having hard moments and very tough on me when I was having very high ego moments. Um, and as subtle and simple as that sounds, it had a real impact on I kind of the, my view of the human side of, of venture capital, which I think is 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 more important than people realize at the early stage, and really important across, you know, I'd say all leadership and management functions. So, that's what led me to Upfront six years ago. We're you know the biggest early stage venture fund in Southern California. We invest though nationally and internationally, but we're almost always like the pre-seed or seed check. Um, done series A style, I mean, high conviction, we reserve, we're on your journey for a decade. And um, that all really resonated with me. And in October of this last year, you had a big personal event, as well as a big event, you know, for the industry in becoming co-managing partner at Upfront. I want you to talk a little bit more about that moment and what it meant to you personally, but also, you know, what the implications are and how you think about that in terms of that moment for the industry. Um, you know, given what we know about technology, which is challenges with minority representation, women representation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because obviously I have a lot of pride around um, being in a firm that, you know, really has built a different kind of team, not just the way we look. And it's, you know, we have, there's seven of us who are investment partners and two of us are women. One of us is a woman of color. Um, we have one of the only African-American partners in the industry. We have every age range from, you know, young thirties to, to, you know, to sixties. We're from four or five different nationalities. But to me, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of what made it special was I didn't really feel like that was special, um, and I was never made to feel like, you know, I, any of us were there for any reason other than we could be exceptional investors, and um, and that's hard to do. Um, but I honestly had like I, I'd say I had a fair amount of just mixed emotions as it relates to the industry. Obviously, I I'm excited. I was excited myself to have the opportunity to jump into that role, and I think, you know. Um, uh, to some extent, um, it became public then, but I've been sort of mentored into kind of taking on more, more responsibility without, I'd say, title changes for a long time. And we really are a team at Upfront and we'll create more and more opportunity for others to do similar sorts of more responsibility. But I'd say that kind of the thing that hit me, I'd say unexpectedly was um, that it shouldn't be news. And um you know, Jonathan Schieber from TechCrunch ended up writing about this and um, he's become a, you know, someone I've gotten to know, he covers the LA ecosystem for, for, for TechCrunch. So we, we love Jonathan. Um, and he, um, he was interviewing me and he said, Kara, I think you're the first woman at a big institutionally kind of well-known back fund to not have to leave to become a managing partner and to kind of grow through the ranks of a partnership of this size with this amount of assets under management. And um, I think we as women were trained to be proud of being the only and, and the most significant thing that's changed for me in the last few years is realizing like we should be sad that we're the only and the uh, so I don't know, that actually made me kind of, um, it really just like hit me in a pretty meaningful way. And there's a lot of women like Trey Vassalo and Aileen Lee and Teresa Guao who are at Excel and Kleiner and funds like that. And so I, I honestly, I texted Trey and I texted Aileen and I texted, you know, a few people um, to just sort of say like, wow, you know, like we still have so much work to do and thank you for being my role model and mentor. Um, 
really it's just an opportunity to go do the next thing um, and to take on a little bit more responsibility with limited partners and strategy and managing. And some people love to do it, some people don't. And I think it's also perfectly reasonable just to be a star individual investor. So, um, you know, those are the complexities of, I guess, of all the ways I viewed it, but ultimately I feel really lucky to get to do it at Upfront and with the partners I have there. Yeah, a, a complex topic and a complex subject, certainly from an introspective, reflective, uh, reflective perspective, as well as I think, uh, in, um, in terms of outlook on the industry itself, there there are a lot of interesting complexities and components. Also, when you think intrinsically, um, you know, about how to operate in venture and how to succeed in venture, as well as extrinsically, when you're looking at different companies, I want to talk about both of those. Um, you codified this a few years ago when you were talking about what are the core elements to be great and it had a very athletic bend to it. And I liked it a lot. And the four elements were, you know, finding a hardcore trainer, finding your Monica or Chandler. Um, I'm a big friends fan as well, questioning everything and sweat. I want you to unpack those four ideas and why those are the elements you zeroed in on when you, when you were thinking about what are those core elements to being great. Yeah. I mean, so hardcore trainer, I think, so, so first of all, I think um, in general, I feel like this idea that you're born an amazing venture capitalist um, or an amazing anything is kind of wrong. I mean, you can be amazing at building technology products or having insights into end users or design or, you know, spinning up open source projects and having credibility in developer communities. But um, there's almost no one who's like, you know, there, there's almost no one who's exceptional at what they they do who hasn't gone through the 10,000 hours of training, right? It's like, you don't be, you might have natural abilities to play a violin, but you don't become a virtuoso unless you, you practice. And so I think this whole idea of like natural born whatever um, is tricky. And so um, <clears throat> looking for somebody who's going to give you kind of hard feedback, valuable feedback, and in a way that you hear it and you take it and you want to do something with it is really important. And it's just like the trainer analogy is like, you can have a great trainer who has a great program, but if you're not ready for it and you're not accepting it, um, and you're not like actually finding your like personal, like intrinsic motivation to, to do it, doesn't really matter, right? It could be Michael Jordan, it could be whoever, but it doesn't matter. Um, so that's the trainer front and just this idea that uh, no one is born exceptional, that it takes a combination of nurture and nature and, and kind of just the hard work. And I think you need someone by your side mentoring you and pushing you. And I've had a handful of those people in my career. Mark, the one I mentioned, has really been that for me um, at Upfront. But there are people like Rick Frisbee, who's the founder of Battery Ventures, who did that for me 20 years ago, or John Aaron Krantz, who was my very first boss out of college. And all these people are still in my life. And so I think when you find those people, you hold on to them too. And you never get to, I don't know, what's the term big in your birches, or you just never become so, you know, kind of high on your own stuff that you don't look for people to color, hold your feet to the fire. Otherwise that's when you start to become less relevant and less good at what you do. Um, the, I guess the second, um, the second is finding your Monica Chandler. I'm so glad you're a Friends fan. Um, my daughters are not into it, so I don't know what to do. They're more of a Shit's Creek, if I'm honest. But um, <laughs> so maybe you need to find your Moira. Um, I think that's just the idea of like you do have to have somebody you can really trust to say things that may not be well received, to have your back, to call when you're down. And you may find that in your firm and I, or you might find that outside your firm. Like I, I you know, I have my partner at DT Maliwal 
who, uh, I mean, I love all of my partners played this role at some point in time, Greg Bettinelli, Kobe Fuller, Kevin Zing, but Aditi and I were friends far before she became a partner at Upfront. And, you know, it's just, it's, I can call her and just have kind of those conversations with her in a way that, um, just bring me joy. But I think in a lot of ways you should look to find that outside your company or your firm. Um, uh, I think it's really like, I have actually gotten more inspiration and more of that than I would imagine from women in entertainment who I got to know through my activism through Time's Up, which is one of the nonprofits I'm involved with in All Rays, which is another one. And um, I think sometimes when you kind of, so, you know, one person who doesn't like me to say nice things about, she probably doesn't mind, but she's very uh, humble is a woman named Katie McGrath, who um, is uh, the, the co-CEO of Bad Robot, which you guys may know as producing Star Wars and Star Trek and Lost and, you know, her co-CEO is J.J. Abrams. But she's just, she's one of these people who I've just seen as like a fearless, empathetic, make people better, constantly trying to reinvent herself kind of leader, but in an adjacent field. Like she and I won't, you know, we don't have natural business to do together. And I think sometimes when you see, you build a friendship or a relationship with somebody in an adjacent field where, the, where there's no natural transaction that could even be in the back of your mind, you might take the feedback differently. It may have more impact. Um, you want me to keep going to three and four? I could stop. Let's do it. Yeah, no, let's do it. This is okay. helpful. Um, I think third is questioning everything. Um, I just think like, um, you know, I'm a big fan of this idea of either you're asking questions and you're curious or you, you become defensive and judgmental. And it doesn't mean you have to like the answers or believe in the answers, but if you assume that there may be answers to questions that you think you know everything about or where you don't yet value the opinion of the person you're asking them of, I think you become irrelevant. I think you become closed-minded. I think this happens naturally to all of us as we age. Just think about your natural biases. You might walk into a room and see an 18-year-old um, who dropped out of college and, you know, didn't, uh, you know, didn't, hasn't worked in a big fancy company. And you just may assume that they have nothing to teach you. Well, there's an 18 year old that I became friendly with named Tiffany Zong. Uh, they, they actually like ended up writing this article about like kind of about us called like why everyone should have a Gen Z mentor in the New York times, which is crazy. And I didn't know if I should be proud of or embarrassed by, but I met Tiffany through my partner, Mark. He had met her on Twitter and he said, you know, talk to her. She's starting a company. Well, we started talking and honestly, she, she was the one who finally made me comfortable using Twitter. And she taught me how to use Twitter. She'd send me my tweets when they weren't working. She'd like be like, what is this? Kara, this makes no sense. Or you look like you're a thousand years old. I mean, I was in my thirties or maybe early. I don't know. I was not a thousand years old, but, um, but it really kind of like demissed. It made me more comfortable with myself in environments where I did feel a little uncomfortable. And I think, um, you know, so if the questioning, everything is like, look for people who it helps you look for people and ideas and, you know, kind of, um, alternative perspectives that evolve your own. Um, I always say now I'm a diehard moderate, even though that, you know, not, I don't mean that politically, but I mean that from the sense of, I like, I like to ask questions. I like to be proven wrong. You know, strong opinions weekly held is sort of my motto. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to debate you logically if I disagree. And 
we may change each other's minds. We might, may not, but I think the best relationships are the ones where um, you can do that and dig in where you have a real point of view that's earned and where they change your mind half the time and you, and you change their mind half the time. Um, and the final quick anecdote I'll mention there is I have this relationship with my, my parents, my husband, my siblings. And I remember my dad and I, and I, we're going to like this drop down, drag out debate about who to vote for in one primary election. Um, and I'm not, I won't get political now and go into that, but we just debated each other for like six months. And then we both went to the polls and we chatted the next day and each of us had voted for the other person's candidate and hadn't told the other one. So, but you know, there were moments in there where we kind of, I don't know, irritated might be the nice word while we were debating. Um, but those are the kinds of relationships that I have really come to appreciate. And then um, the final one is sweat. I mean, it's just to the first point, you got to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love what you just said, Kara, because I think it, it gives a nice kind of holistic system also, which is find your coach, kind of find your confidant, have the innate curiosity and the motivation to push and then do the work. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you distill it kind of down to your own personal system, it kind of comes to four individual intrinsic components that form a, a really kind of nice, elegant system for yourself to abide by. Uh, and so those are four intrinsic components. Then there's a whole bunch of extrinsic components to find within companies that you're investing in, right? That's what you sure. do today. That's, your, that's what you're a professional in. And you've classified yourself as a thesis-driven investor. So I want you in kind of the same way to, to unpack for us some of the types of intrinsic, uh, extrinsic elements that you look for when you're, when you're assessing opportunities, you're looking at companies, and then the interrelation you know, between both of those. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I actually would classify myself as you use theses to find founders and you find to, to find the person and you use people to find theses. So I do think mm -hmm. it's an ecosystem. Um, and ultimately for me, it is about the founder and the person. And, and I'd, 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 al I'd almost always rather back an incredible person who I think has the characteristics that I'm looking for in a market I'm less sure of than a market I'm very sure of without that founder. The flip side is, you know, the further I think you get along in, in your venture career, you do realize pivots are everywhere, right? Pivots meaning you started by, do and this happens in big companies too. You start by doing one thing and you end up somewhere else. I mean. Tinder, as an example, when, when I recruited Sean Radin and he started building that, it was a, it was like an Uber-esque platform for um, like, it was like a loyalty card for small businesses that would use social and local data to figure out when somebody walked into a restaurant, had they been there 10 times before and could you have their table ready for them? Um, and so it, it, it went through a quite a journey to pivot into dating. And so that's an example of like, massive pivot, but for the most part, idea pivoting or like taking data and moving in a different direction, it does usually tend to be limited by the market you've decided to be in, not always. Um, we actually have an investment in a portfolio company called Goat, which is a sneakerhead marketplace. It actually started as enterprise software for restaurants <laughs> or a restaurant booking app. So again, there are examples of these major shifts, but not as many. Um, so I, you know, I, I really, I use kind of theses to find people, but the, the, but I really do want to make sure they're in markets or, or kind of theses that have enough room to run and that I'm personally incredibly excited about. And I think that's really important, whether you're looking for a sponsor for your new idea at, um, you know, a big company or a business, 
which are also constantly launching adjacent products and new marketing strategies and the like, or you're actually starting a new company, you kind of want to find an advocate who believes enough in you and the idea. Because I always say to founders when I, you know, when when we're in the kind of learning about each other phase, you want to make sure that when that person shows up on your phone at 11 o'clock at night, when something's gone very right or very wrong, you're excited and they're excited. And then as an investor, I don't need to be the expert. Like, I think that's a mistake to think you need to be the expert, but I do need to have enough passion about what you're doing to drive people crazy at what I used to say were cocktail parties. Now I would say Zoom friend gatherings. <laughs> um, so I look for like, uh, why is this person doing this thing? What is their earned insight? Like, have they watched too many HBO specials? On, uh, <laughs> on this thing, or is it like really in their blood to wanna go solve this problem or build to this opportunity? Um, I think a lot of like very talented, competitive people who, who have the characteristics of being an entrepreneur and founder fall in love with the idea of being a founder and they also have to fall in love with the idea of the idea. And that's a hard thing, even when you're doing it yourself as someone who was a former founder, you don't always know the difference. So why the why of what they're building, that where did their earned insight come from? Did they sell this product kind of product in the past? Did they build it? Is it something that they've really lived through in a deep and personal way? Um, for me, it's then does it scale with technology? And that doesn't need to be the case for all businesses, but for the ones you know that look for venture capitalist funding, it is very, it is much harder to scale businesses, even if they're real world oriented, without a strong view on technology. And then you know, is this the kind of person that can can attract world class talent and funding? You know, because it does, it is a little bit of like getting like getting people who are more talented than you are in their specific things in a very competitive market for that um, is you know is critically important. I wanted you to set the groundwork on, on both of those elements, the intrinsic and extrinsic because I think they come together really nicely actually in your work to bring a professional women's soccer team to Los Angeles Angel oh. City. And to set the context for our listeners, Angel City is remarkable for many reasons, but uh, not the least of which it's the first professional sports team that's majority women-owned, majority women-founded, and has a woman present at the helm. So I want you, to Kara, to tell us what Angel City is and, and how it came about, and then we're going to spend the rest of the conversation really digging into the experience, you know, bringing the sports team to LA. Sure. So yes, so Angel City is, um, as you said, uh, the first majority female-owned, female-led professional sports team in the country. Um, it's one of the NWSL, which is professional soccer league teams in the United States. Um, we actually now have our second uh, team that can be called majority female-owned, female-led, which is the team that is just uh, moved from Salt Lake City to Kansas City and was bought by a friend of mine from college, Angie Long. So that's a fun story around, I think the set fires and, you know, I was inspired by people and then you pay it forward because um, you can't just be one in anything. You can't be the only woman in a venture firm. You can't be the only, you know, kind of non-white male in a venture firm or owner. And, and that should be everyone's goal is if you get one of something, get two, because then two becomes four and four becomes six. But what we are, we're a brand, you know, we're a brand that um, uh, happens to have a core product, which is uh, women, which is some of the best play soccer players in the world 
playing soccer and hopefully bringing home winning seasons like many of our other incredible LA teams. I grew up a huge Lakers fan in the Magic Johnson, James Worthy era. And, um, you know, in a family where I used to joke around, we'd watch anything on ESPN when I, we, so I'll, I'll do that again because I got that. Well, what we would watch anything on ESPN when I was a kid, um, whether it was, you know, football, basketball, soccer, or even log rolling. Like we, I think we actually watched lumberjack contests on ESPN 85 or, or whatever the most ex- obscure ESPN channel was. Um, and really what you connect to are brands that stand for something that you feel a part of that tribe and that community. And so the thing that's really cool about that is I can give you a bunch of examples. Manchester United, Dallas Cowboys, right? Um, Chicago Cubs, right? They hadn't won a World Series and the Curse of the Bambino, you know, uh, Drew Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon movies about it. And yet like diehard fans that would weep in their Chicago beer, you know? And so um, the reason you have that is because you feel like a connection to a community. And so that's what Angel City is about. Like it's built with mission and community and, uh, you know, a belief that we uh, watching women play soccer is incredibly uh, exciting and fun and dynamic and as fun as watching any men's sport. And that the reason you, you're either, there are two kinds of NWSL fans, those who are diehard fans and those who will become diehard fans or don't yet know. Um, But if you can't see or watch these games, if you can't follow player stories, if there are no behind the scenes red zone type shows on them, you don't know if you're a fan. And that was the thing that that got under my skin. And I could go more into the origin story if you'd like, but ultimately we're brand, we're going to show up on the field first, but um, well, actually maybe not even first. I mean, the adjacent content, the merchandise were, we've sold already completely organically. The, you know, the, a lot of the inspiration for this came from esports and the fact that when you're a brand and you have a mission and you have a community, you can show up anywhere and there'll be many revenue streams beyond the two or three that are most well understood in sports. And we've been fortunate that, you know, we raised our initial capital from Alexis Ohani and Serena Williams and actually their daughter, who's the youngest professional sports team owner in the country, Olympia. Um, but we went on, but when we were building that initial syndicate, we did it with high intention and we ended up bringing in 14 former U.S. women's national team players led by Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and then Abby Wambach, Billie Jean King, Lindsey Vaughn, right? And then all the way to, you know, we, I co-founded it with Natalie Portman and Eva Longoria and America Ferrera and, you know, Becky G. And so it's like cross-generational um, women, women of color, women from all, and, and men. We need the men too. We have incredible men who are investors as well. Um, but I will say that I, I think if you talk to our investors who are these high profile people in a lot of cases, in some cases, they're just awesome people. They come to our quarterly, you know, board Zoom or like investor Zooms and it's the most fun thing they do. Um, and so I think there's this, this joy that comes out of our community. And, you know, we've had something like $150 million of earned media. We've already broken Ticketmaster and our seat deposits in the first 48 hours. Uh, if you haven't bought a ticket and you're listening now, go to weareangelcity.com that we may be sold out by the time you get this. And, um, but it really is about community and mission. And last quick thing on the mission front, um, we're just, we've been doing innovative things to support the causes we care about from the beginning. 
this team actually originally emerged out of Natalie Portman and I getting to know each other through Time's Up and our activism around pay equity. And um, we spent a lot of time just supporting the players on the US Women's National Team pay equity fight without a twinkle in our eye that we'd become professional sports team owners. And so, you know, we're breaking records on sponsorships. DoorDash is our jersey sponsor, Birdie's our sleeve sponsor. And we, we donate, for example, 10% of every sponsored dollar to a local cause, delivering local meals, you know, sports equipment for people in communities who don't have it and all of those different things. And you, and you noted that in the formation of Angel City, you know, yourself, Natalie, Julie Ehrman is the president of the club. You guys had hundreds of conversations with all varieties of stakeholders, right? Owners, players, entertainment executives, activists, union leaders, fans, et cetera. What were, what were some examples of the key insights that you gleaned you know, from talking to these groups, right? So both specific perspectives that were interesting or impactful that came out of these groups, as well as collective perspectives that overlapped the group. Yeah, I love that question. Um, and you're actually really making me think. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> I mean, uh, so the first one, first one is just um, how much of a growth mindset it was required to believe that a woman's team could be a multi-billion dollar brand and that those that perspective of what it would take you know it's sort of like in venture when i come in i'm writing often a two three four million dollar it check into something let's call it goat right my partner greg bettinelli did that but i'll just talk about it for a second it's a sneakerhead marketplace when we backed goat um and when they went into their pivot here everyone said well who's gonna who's gonna wear like how many people are going to buy more than one pair or two pairs of sneakers a year, right? And how could this be big, right? Now they do billions of dollars of transactions through it. And what you see with the, 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 the kind of the companies that become the most culturally iconic, like generational companies, they're people who change the behavior of their user. You, they, it actually may be the case that at the time I only bought two pairs of sneakers a year, but by the way, now even I, and I love high heels, or at least I used to before COVID, um, buy five or 10 pairs of sneakers a year. I love it. I have a ton of identity around it. So having something that's so in the cultural zeitgeist to get you to change your behavior. And so we're like very used to as venture capitalists looking for that. And so one of my biggest insights was just how narrow-minded <laughs> so much of the world was and how much it sort of proved to me and Natalie and Julie Ehrman, who you mentioned, um, that we saw something that only a couple people here or there saw in the beginning. And it was the belief that, you know, when I came home from the 2015 World Cup, I couldn't find a jersey to buy. I couldn't find content to watch um, anywhere. And I was like, and then I kind of lost interest if I'm honest. And, and, and it's one of those things where like, you have these, this idea that you could do a big marketing campaign and activate someone. I mean, think about the Oscars. How many people go watch the winner of best picture after the Oscars? They get a huge bump afterwards. But if you could not find that content, you wouldn't get that bump, right? And then maybe you follow that director, that actress, or that series again, and you keep watching it, all right? If you see a tweet about Ted Lasso for the 18th time on Twitter, and you haven't seen it, you're like, oh my gosh, I should watch Ted Lasso. But if you know, no, you're the fight, you're never going to watch Ted Lasso. So that was one insight. Like you could literally, the only place you could follow 
women's soccer was through like Ashlyn Harris's Instagram account, which I became addicted to. She was the goalkeeper on the US national team at the time. Um, and there are many more like that. If you could believe that, you know, that media coverage and, you know, kind of was a thing you could do, then you would, you would actually, you would, you would get a virtuous cycle and then you'd be able to get more sponsors and pay more for game, you know, play the payer, play the payer, pay the players more, which was the original driver for me getting involved. Um, second insight is probably a business insight, which is, um, it's really expensive to build stadiums, turns out. <laughs> <laughs> there are, you know, projects that are in the hundreds of millions or even I think billions of dollars. I mean, they're expensive. And then you also need practice facilities. And so we're interestingly at a spot where there, and, and by the way, the experience of watching any sports game is better if it's in a purpose-built arena or stadium. So if you went to watch a Lakers game in the Coliseum, which is where the Raiders used to play in LA or the Rams used to play in LA more recently, it'd probably be not a great experience, right? But if you get to go to the Staples Center, it's a great experience. Well, in most cities in the United States now, you have one or two purpose-built soccer stadiums and training facilities. So it's almost like, think about it like Uber or Airbnb. You have, you can do an infrastructure light model where instead of taking all of your front office and all of your relationships and focusing it on building a stadium and building a brand and building a team and all of those different things, you can put it just on part of it, you know, negotiate to kind of leverage this asset. And then what does that open you up to do? Well, you can, I mean, our merch drops, you know, are, are, are amazing. I mean, we sell out on almost every one of them and, you know, that might be as big a revenue line item for us as ticket sales. Um, and so, Anyway, so that's the second thing. And then I think the third thing is whatever industry you go into, you have to go into with a certain amount of irreverence and wanting to choose people wrong and the thing you see differently. And then a huge amount of respect for what you don't know and what you have to learn and getting the right people around you. We're really, really fortunate to work with LAFC, which is the big men's team here. Um, the president there, Larry Freeman, has been incredible. The whole ownership group, you know, which is everybody from like Brendan Beck from Riot Games to, to um, um, Will Farrell, who like shows up in our videos and supports us. But like we've learned a lot like from their ticketing teams and, you know, there's just a bunch of different things where like you, you collaborate and share knowledge. And there are probably hundreds of other people who have done that for us in either formal or informal roles. Um, and we've surrounded ourselves on our board and in our syndicate with people who know sports really well and can call us out when we're missing something. And, um, and you know, that, I think that's true of every traditional industry you, you go into. You have to have an appropriate amount of respect and reverence for what you need to learn. By this point in the conversation, a lot of people might actually be asking the question, you know, why women's soccer? Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's two ways to think about that. There's, of course, kind of a, a personal affection or a personal uh, attraction to a sport, right? There's the other side of it, though, which is this, the raw, cold, hard facts. You've said before that the sport's at an inflection point. I want you to talk about the facts and the narrative that supports that perspective um, and giving us some insight on how you plan to capitalize on it. You, you talked about the different elements or, or rev streams, um, but I want you to focus a little bit more actually on why women's soccer, why you believe women's soccer has had an inflection point, because I think sure. that'll actually be a unique perspective for a lot of the folks that are listening to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first I'd say go to a game, come to Angel City, 
DM me. I'll see if I can get you some tickets um, or, or go to a men's game, come to an LAFC game. Um, I think when, when you go and have an experience in a purpose-built soccer stadium with fans and community members like we all have, and we're fortunate to have them from the start at, um, at Angel City um, and LAFC has them as well. We both have this section, you know, they call it 3252, but it's, it's 3,252 fans that are in standing room only purpose built for them where they choose their own beverages, where they raise flags and fly falcons or eagles or just, I mean, it's, and, and where you go and it's just the energy captivates you. And so I think st the starting point would be, um, uh, Soccer is a global sport. It's the fastest growing sport. It's the heaviest participation sport of youth everywhere, including in the United States. And it's fast paced, it's fun. It is like built for the sports in TikTok generation, right? It's just fabulous and fun. And I think honestly, like you don't have to even explain this to somebody from Brazil or Argentina or England or, or Italy or Germany. And um, if you're in the United States and you're like, I'm not sure, go to a game. Uh, and if it's not a purpose-built stadium for it, uh, then go to one that was in another city and make a road trip out of it because it'll be fun. The second thing is um, just some facts for you. Women's sports in, oh, well, so, I guess second, I would say the US women's national team um, is the best team in the world. They've won the last two World Cups. I was at both of those World Cups. The first one is a true fan with uh, my three daughters and my husband and my parents. And that was the beginning of my inspiration when I coming out of that. And I was so energized by the quality of the play and their cultural relevance. And when I couldn't find content in jerseys, I kind of like my mind was blown. I just started talking to everyone about it. And here we are six years later. Um, but, um, there, you know, and then the second one was in France and I still didn't know I was going to start a team, but I knew that I needed to be at those games and do everything I could to get there. But they're the best in the world at the most global sport. They are cultural icons. They are the LeBron James of, uh, like, I don't even know of, like they are the LeBron James. And I mean, that's a big, that's a big bar to hold, but like, I think LeBron, not that I've spoken to him about it he has come forward and is doing unique things to support women's sports now and buy into teams. And what you're seeing is a lot of the male athletes recognizing that opportunity and watching women's sports, but Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Mia Hamm, Abby Wambach, Crystal Dunn. I mean, like these are the cultural icons to, you know, the next generation. And, um, and, and, and I think that's probably an important thing. If you think about Colin Kaepernick and kind of his whole story, um, his whole very difficult story. Uh, it used to be that, you know, Michael Jordan wouldn't talk about, wouldn't talk about politics or, you know, issues that were important and that's changed. And people want to know that their heroes are both heroes on the field and they want to know what they stand for off the field. I don't think you have to agree, but they want to know. And so, and then they become fashion icons and the like, and you just have that in spades in women's soccer, the best in the world at what they do on the field and cultural icons off the field. Um, and then I think like, just in general, I mean, like you are seeing this trend across all women's sports, WNBA, uh, many other women's sports, women's sports get 4% of media coverage, but yet, and have never had traditional. So meaning like the meta coverage, ESPN talking about it um, and making you interested in it or having Premier League apps or fantasy apps dedicated so you can gamble on it. Like that just doesn't, didn't, didn't and doesn't exist and it's starting to change. 
with people like Meg Linehan and others who like Meg Linehan was the first full-time reporter ever on women's soccer. And she works for the athletic and they've done a terrific job, but that's only happened recently. So um, what you see now, just getting into the whole cold, hard facts, um, CBS and Twitch, for example, have, have contracts to broadcast uh, US women's, or sorry, uh, NWSL games. As soon as like the games that are on, like you can find and are on, they're beating many men's sports. They are breaking records. They are doing better than, I mean, they're, all the comparisons aren't totally fair, but they'll do better than regular season, you know, NBA games or even Premier League games. And so, and you're just kind of bringing the fan base over into the mainstream. And so it's just all the trends are moving in that direction to show you as long as you kind of keep going and you get more distribution, the fans are going to be there and we're on the right side of demographics and history. So there's trends and then there's there's access, right? Like there's actually bringing the fans, you know, to these outlets or so. What, are, what have been some of the other kind of non-obvious learnings that have come about in bringing a sports team to a market, right? So there's, I imagine there's a there's a host of kind of hypotheses when you're thinking of embarking on this project, but as you're actually doing it, what are what are some of the interesting non-obvious learnings that have come out? Yeah, by the way, I'll say if you are listening to this and you're in a mark like a strong what you think is a strong soccer market, and you really you want to have real talk, find me and and we and you think you can do it, find me and I'll help you. Um, the the non-obvious, well, here, and the most non-obvious one is like, if you wanted to just go out and start a company to sm- sell sneakers or sell kombucha, you, you could just do it, right? You need, you probably need some sort of raw startup capital. So you're going to ru- run up your credit card bill or take out a small business loan or, or just put sweat equity and get enough people to put sweat equity into it. But you probably could figure out how to start brewing that kombucha in your backyard and bottling it and I don't know, kombucha might not be the best example because I'm sure there's some FDA requirements involved, but walk, you know, walk down your street and sell it, right? Put up a Shopify site and sell it. In sports, you got to convince, you know, 10, whatever it is, 10 to 30 other owners that you should get an exclusive right to your market. So there are more gatekeepers, I would say, than other areas, which is why I think the role modeling of showing there are different ways and different kinds of people who can catalyze community and generate revenue. Like we have to, to pay players. I always say, you know, you can't, you can't pay unless you're, you also are good at the capitalist part and it has to be a, a virtuous cycle. So it's what we want to do. It's what got us here, but we got to show, we all got to show we can make money across multiple teams and then pay that through. But I think there, there are more gatekeepers and get like the idea of, you know, getting an exclusive right to your market is, is important because without it, you can't operate. So that's number one. I'd say number two is really investing in the front office and thinking about it in a different way. Like bringing, I mean, bringing in people who have either operated in or been exposed to high growth markets, media, gaming, tech. Um, I mean, it really could be anything, but I think having a cognitively, a cognitively diverse team that will say, okay, you've done that. You've done it. Every sports team does it that way, whatever it is, ticketing stadium, launch announcement, seat deposits. Um, ask the question, right? Like to the beginning, like, why do we do it that way? And have we thought about this? And have we thought about that? And, you know, eight times out of 10, you might say, or four times out of five, if I do the math, you might say, okay, that makes sense. Let's do it exactly the same way as every other team. But one out of 10, you might say, 
you know, why, like, why can't, I'm trying to think of an example of where I said, why, why, why? Um, I mean, I, 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 there are a lot, a lot of them in the early days when people were telling me this didn't make sense and women's soccer didn't make money. And there are teams that were making money already then. I would say, but what if this one assumption in the model changed? Well, let me tell you why it can't change. I'm like, well, but no, no, no. But that is assuming these four other things. So, I mean, the term that I think is hackneyed and overused, but going back to first principles around some of these things, if you could assume that you'll break even if you sell a certain amount of tickets with no other revenue stream, if you don't own a stadium, then what do you have to believe to actually be one of the highest producing revenue generating teams out there, male or female? So I think that in, that one is like an important one is ask the questions and know where you have good answers versus answers that you want to push on and prove something different. And then, you know, I'd say the final insight is it has to come from love. <laughs> you, you know, I, 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 if you had told me whatever, two years ago that I would be a professional sports team owner, I would have laughed. You know, I, I, I am fortunate. I found Julie Ehrman because she runs it day to day. And I was sort of these fire and inspiration and relentlessness in the beginning with Natalie that got it going. And, and we do play a role, but very much she's the one who runs it. Um, but I mean, it was our friendship. It was our shared passion for it. It was my desire to like talk about it during small talk for no reason at all years before anything came to fruition. And so you got to have the love and you have to be okay with it not working and that's okay as well. Like there were many moments that we thought, oh, maybe we won't get there, but I started as an activist and I just wanted to get the women's soccer players paid more money and have a union that could be self-sustaining. And so if this journey ends with it not working, that's okay. But the further we got into it, the more I was like, this should happen. If you believe it in your soul, then you know the odds start to move in your favor. How do you think about the look forward for Angel City? And when I when I say that, I'm, what I mean by that is, you know, what will when I when I say the question, you know, what will Angel City be in ten years? What comes to your mind? What are the markers for success for the project? What's the impact you want this club to have on the city, the community? When I say that phrase, Kara, what what comes into your mind, and how do you think about that? I mean, what comes into my mind is it's um, it's a successful entity that's lived up to the mission and the values in the community. It's successful from uh, making money, gener well, generating revenue standpoint, um, and it has done it because of its mission and community, not in spite of it. And the because of it, I think, is really new. But I, I think as a part of a whole, like the 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 uh, it, the whole league, all the teams, and we are now seeing very similar things happening. You know, we were inspired by the Portland Thorns on the women's side and the LAFC and many other teams, you know, men's and women's, but, you know, the Portland Thorns, which, which is a terrific team in the NWSL run by Merritt Paulson. Um, he, you know, so he invited us up and he said, come to a game, see what it's about, see what like amazing women's soccer looks like. Cause by the way, if you love soccer, women's so soccer that happens to be played by women and you live in California, Southern California is the biggest soccer market in, in the, in the, in the country. You couldn't go to a game anywhere in California. Portland was the closest place to go. And so he went open book. He shared their model. He said, we'll get you going. We're, and so um, the, so it, start, it starts with Portland and North Carolina and the Washington Spirit and Angel City, but we're all in it together. And we all show those results where we're winning in because of our brands and our mission. Um, 
I think it's bringing more access to sport to, to, to young kids. It's keeping younger girls in sports. Like girls drop out at, I think two X the rate is boys uh, when they're 13 or 14. It's realizing though, that this is for the men and the women, the boys and the girls. Our audience is likely to be 50-50. Men and boys love this as much as girls. Natalie Portman's son, I think she talks about this famously, like what inspired her, at least partially, was he would trade off wearing messy jerseys and rapino jerseys. And so, um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's, and then, you know, I mean, we all, we all want to, I, I think we all look at teams like Manchester United and the Dallas Cowboys from a brand recognition standpoint, but I hope people, you know, I hope we write the case studies for Harvard or Stanford or one of them on, on sort of the business side of this. How did we structure our cap table? Who did we bring in to it? Who did we say no to? Who do we think? Where did things go right? Where did things go wrong to show there's no perfect path, but, you know, to show there are different revenue streams and different kinds of teams that can be built in this way. Um, and inspire change across, you know, different industries. But we, we have to do that with, I mean, that's where I hope to be in 10 years. I have to say that with a lot of humility now, we, we don't take the field for another, you know, another year, but things are moving. I mean, behind the scenes, things are moving. We're ramping up our soccer operations. We're going to release our crest and colors and logo very soon. You know, we're, we're taking seat deposits, um, but we have, a, we have a lot to prove. We got to get out there and prove it. Well, Kara, this has been this has been awesome. I've so appreciated the time and, and the perspective on, you know, not only thinking about kind of these extrinsic and intrinsic factors when you think about greatness, you think about evaluating companies, but really taking the blend of those elements and, and applying it to um, a substantial project in bringing a professional sports team to a major city. So thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed having you on the show today. No, thanks for having me. This is terrific. And um, I'm really grateful I got a, a chance to spend some time with you. So thank you.